0: The passage on which today's uh, teaching is based comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? there is still the youngest Jesse answered but he is tending the sheep Samuel said send for him we will not sit down until he arrives so he sent and had him brought in he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features then the Lord said rise and anoint him he is the one so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power Samuel then went to Ramah and this is God's word In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was supposed to be the king, a king with God's heart, but he was corrupt. He became like the rest of the kings of his day, and so God rejects him as king, and so Samuel, he's grieving. He's grieving, but then God comes to Samuel and says, but there is somebody, somebody who's after my own heart, a real king. And so from this passage, we're going to learn three things about kingly character, One, why we always overlook it Two, the makings of it And lastly The pursuit of it Why we always Overlook it, the makings Of it, and then The pursuit of kingly character First, we're going to look at why do we Always overlook it Chapter 15, God tells Samuel I'm grieved that Saul is king, and so he rejects Him, and Samuel, he's in mourning He's crying Chapter sixteen, verse one, we see that Saul is—I mean, Samuel is still grieving, and it takes God to snap Samuel out of it. It says, "How long are you going to mourn?" God comes to Samuel and he says, I'm sending you to Bethlehem. I'm going to give you somebody else. And he says, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. And so you get to verse 6 to 7. That's the center of really this passage. Samuel sees Eliab. Eliab is the eldest son. He sees his appearance and he sees his height. And he's impressed. And he says, yes, surely this is the one. This is the Lord's anointed. But God responds, Essentially, verse 7, he says, Samuel, you are distracted. You are misdirected and you're looking at the wrong things. You're paying attention to something that's unimportant, but it looks important. And you're obsessed with externals. I mean, just because it's visible, just because it's material, it doesn't make it real. It doesn't make it important. Eliab is tall. Eliab is tall. Says this is the one. Why does the author talk about lives height? And it's because Saul was tall. King Saul was a giant. He was he uh, to be tall in ancient times, it represents having power, having strength, the ability to lead. Saul was a head taller than other people. And so when Samuel anointed Saul, he says, The Lord anointed you. He sees alive now. He's looking at the same quality, the same pattern of mistakes. And God responds, as a result, you're prone to make the same mistake in judgment as you did with Saul because you're intoxicated by Eliab's appearance and his height. By his appearance and his height? Really? I mean, those are ancient times, right? Those are primitive times, right? We don't do that anymore. We don't look at people's looks anymore, do we? We don't look at people's uh, ability to lead, their confidence anymore, do we? That's exactly what we do. We're assuming someone's potential, someone's gifts, someone's strength, someone's power and their skills based on how they look, how athletic they are. God says, Samuel, friends, that's the trap. The Lord looks at the heart. Character is the reality. Your externals your focus on someone's looks, that's the misdirection, that's the distraction, that's the intoxication. In other words, physical appearance, a person's smoothness, their intelligence, their credentials, their talent, their success, their wealth, those things are unimportant. I didn't say they were less important, I said they were unimportant. They're not reality. Character is always going to be more important than externals. Now, God says, man looks at the outer appearance, but not God. We live in a society, we live in a culture that's bombarded by images, bombarded with images of physical beauty. And the Bible says that we are investing way too much energy, way too much time relying on these externals when we should be investing that energy, investing that time in building character. And it's corroding our souls, it's ruining our lives. I'm going to give you some examples. One, the makeup industry, the fashion industry, most industries, the pornography industry. It capitalizes on our obsession with the shape of a person, with the quality of their skin as opposed to their character. And it's hurting our women. It's damaging our women. It's destroying our marriages. It's destroying our families. destroying society. Secondly, if you look, if you're really honest with yourself, everybody practically does dating the same way Jesse Uh, views a king at least in their heart we're too embarrassed we know our conscience tells us it's probably not what we should be doing but that's what we do Jesse knew that one of his sons is going to be king so what does he do he lines everybody up and he brings the most physically impressive the one that he's most proud of the attractive one the gifted son forward first and then the second and then the third Samuel, I mean, he's on the other side. We've got these two idiots, these fools. They're just uh, taken and overwhelmed by Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. But David is completely overlooked. And yet, David is the king. Now, we are all like Samuel. We are all like Jesse. We're all fools. We're all idiots. Because we do the exact same thing. We're obsessed with the lives. We pursue a person, what they do. I mean, it's not too different from 50 years ago. 50 years ago, if you read the New York Times marriage section, there is a marriage section in the New York Times, right? Uh, it talks about two people coming together in marriage, and they focused on what families they came from. It was about your status, your pedigree. Today, that has been virtually replaced with, if you look at the marriage section of well-renowned newspaper like the New York Times. It talks about two people coming together in holy matrimony, and it focuses and emphasizes on what degrees they have, what schools they came from, what pedigrees that they've acquired along the way, what credentials they've acquired along the way. We pursue skills and credentials, pedigree, our wealth potential, when you should be pursuing humility, repentance, wisdom. Those are all big words, but we're never impressed by humility and repentance and wisdom. We're never impressed by a person's character. And by the way, I'm not saying don't look for a good person. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying don't look for a good person, right? Or that or you should be looking for a good person, right? There's a fundamental difference between being good and gospel character. There's a fundamental difference between growing up in the church and gospel character. But when we meet somebody, even in the church, we're always first impressed by their looks, their intelligence, their job, their education, their wealth. And we just hope to God that they have good character we assume that they have good character because they're so smooth in their ability to socialize with people they must have decent character they're well liked by others that must mean that they have good character the gospel says what real character real kingliness is not natural it doesn't just come to you time and experience by alone Uh, your wealth your education, it doesn't build real kingliness. It's very counterintuitive. This text says, we're all looking at the wrong things. We have to overhaul our perspective, our worldview on what the right things are. We're all looking at the wrong things, and the chances of having just eliminated a real king, the true king, is very high because we're all distracted. We all do dating. We all do marriage pursuit of Mr. Wright or Miss. Wright uh, the same way, the way that Jesse and Samuel does it. Now third, why do people come to the big cities? Why do people come to big cities like Philadelphia? it 's to uh, improve their educational status, improve their uh, potential to build wealth, their chances of meeting Mr. Wright or miss Wright. that 's why they come to the big city. Because things happen in the city. That's where culture is. So people are attracted to the cities. In a big city, there's such a wide concentration of gifted people, of wealthy people, of intelligent people, educated people, who have the right looks and the right figure, that it becomes a source of lots of comparison, lots of envy and jealousy, anxiety, depression, and anger, because they're constantly battling people for the right role and the right job the right placement opportunities, the right relationships, and so we're absolutely miserable. And it's because our sense of worth is hooked into all these things, and it's so deeply rooted. I mean, you don't really, you're not even, it takes a tremendously self-aware person to see how deeply rooted these values are in our lives, and as a result, it becomes corrosive to our souls. I mean, it starts... Most uh, people in, in our context, in our church, I mean, it starts at a very, very young age because of the pressures that are placed on you to get into the right schools. And don't blame your parents, because when you do well, you feel good about yourself. You know, your parents may have been a trigger, your teachers may have been a trigger, but we build that on ourselves, and you start to, how you select friends, if you're an athlete, You like to hang out with other good athletes. There are good athletes and bad athletes, even on the same team. Right? And even your social structures are shaped by what you value as kingly in your life. It's corrosive to our souls. It causes lots of brokenness, even in the church. Now, when God says, I don't want them as king... I look at the heart, it's very easy to misunderstand that to mean that David was a good person and Saul was a bad person or that his brothers were a bad people. And that can't be true because if you read the rest of the life of David, which is uh, encompassed in First and Second Samuel, if you read the rest of that, you're going to see that at the end, David's record, is he doesn't fare too much better than Saul. He doesn't do much better uh so he couldn't have been king because he's good and Saul is bad or he's good or his brothers are bad you see in this passage it says what verse 13 right at the end Samuel takes the horn of oil he anoints David in the midst of his brothers and from that day on the spirit came upon him and rushed in on David flooded David's life he anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of God came upon David and rushed in on David. Why? Just to improve what little, the few gaps that he had? I mean, why do we come to church? Just to supplement our lives with something that we lack? That one, you know, magic thing that we need because we're all in all pretty okay people? No, the Spirit of God came in. And it says that it flushed him in his life. It came upon him every second. What that means is every second of his life for the rest of his life. In other words, what? Apart from God, apart from God's spirit, you cannot become kingly on your own. We need God's spirit. You know, for those of you in seminary, this is a monergistic approach to viewing God's role in your life. Right? Every day of your life, every second of your life, you need the Holy Spirit flooding into your life. You need God in every second, every decision, every decision, every temptation, because every day you're bombarded with other voices that are affirming the exact opposite, that are aligned to actually what you really want, what you think you need. What you want is often aligned to what the voices affirm, and only God's voice, God's strength, God's power flooding into your life every second through every decision, every temptation, every day in your life moment by moment will shape you. That's why we often overlook kingly character. What are the makings of it? Jesse had eight sons and he prayed seven of them In front of Samuel Seven seven is the number for completeness Perfection And so Jesse brings seven Samuel sees seven Samuel says yes seven it's perfect One of them must be it But God he doesn't choose any of them He dismisses the seven So he turns to Jesse and he says Jesse is this it? Here's what it says Verse 11 Jesse says well no there is the youngest Now the Hebrew word literally Takes that idea of youth And combines it with insignificance Brings it together here And essentially Jesse he doesn't say Well there is the youngest that's not really what he says in Hebrew What he says is well okay there's, There is one more there's, there's that one But I didn't even ask him to come He's insignificant he can't be it That's why he's a nobody I mean I don't even know what his gifts are So we just put him out there. He's tending to the sheep. Somebody's got to do it. Samuel says, I need to see him. And so David comes in, and God says, This is the one. Now, in ancient times, it was governed by uh, a system of what we call primogeniture. What that means is that the oldest son in the family receives all the authority, all the blessing, um, and all the authoritative power to manage wealth distributed throughout the rest of his family for the rest of his life. But every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. So uh, instead of valuing the older son, God always values the younger son. And so he takes on Abel and not Cain. He takes on Jacob and not Esau. He takes on Joseph and not Reuben. He takes on Moses, not Aaron. God always works through the forgotten person, through the overlooked person. And so David is a descendant of Leah and not Rachel. He is overlooked. Leah is overlooked. Leah is unattractive. Leah was married to Jacob. Jacob was overlooked. Jacob was unfavored. Jacob's father was Isaac, who was born through a barren woman named Sarah. You see what's going on here? In a culture that represents uh, where uh, your beauty, your status... Your position was everything. God always worked through the lesser person, the younger person, the overlooked person, the unattractive person, the weaker person. What does that mean? If you are the lesser person, if you are overlooked, if you are unattractive, if you are younger, if you are weaker, that means that God, you've kind of set the stage for God to work through you. Oftentimes we complain about being the lesser person. And yet God made you wholly unique in a way that he could work through you. And he doesn't work through them in spite of their weakness and their insignificance. He actually works through them through their insignificance, through their weakness. So if you're looked, if you're if you're overlooked, if you're forgotten, if you've ever felt socially dissonant in your life, God is setting the stage, the building box to be working in you and through you. Now think about this. Robert Alter, he's uh, one of my favorite authors uh, in the Old Testament. Um, He's a very famous... a liberal, uh, but literary scholar. Uh, he's, he teaches at Berkeley. He says, you know, if David was never forgotten, he's a, he's an incredible. Um, his his knowledge of the Hebrew, his understanding of the Hebrew, is probably unique in all the world. I mean, they say he's probably one of the foremost scholars in Hebrew in the ancient Hebrew language. He says, if David was never forgotten, and looking after the sheep, killing bears and lions larger things he never would have learned the skills that he needed to defeat goliath that's why later on in the next chapter when he encounters goliath when he sees goliath everybody else is standing in a line and david's looking at it like what's the big deal it's because god groomed him in this period of being overlooked to give him certain skills And teach him certain values that are important in being kingly. In fact, it was being overlooked that provided that incubation period where David was instinctively trained. He did not go to school for this. He did not go to military academy for this. He did not go to West Point or the Coast Guard Academy or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy for this. He didn't score high on his SATs to get into these schools to do this. He was not pegged by his parents to be the star student. He was out there in the lowliest parts doing the lowliest things, but learning to be faithful and available, teachable, moldable. There he learned to worship God personally, personally, Develop intimacy with a father that was closer to him than maybe his own family, members of his own family. And so he was a poet and a writer, a philosopher and a thinker. He was a warrior and a fighter and a protector and a shepherd. He learned all those things in this incubation period. Very, very important application here. Some of you right now, right now are in a time of darkness and anxiety and you just feel like you've hit some dead end in your life maybe it's in your career, maybe it's in your relationships, just your life. And a year has gone by with lockdowns and social distancing and, and you feel like David, you've kind of been tossed aside. But don't you get it? In the Bible, that is how greatness develops. That darkness that dead end, that aloneness, that being overlooked is an incubator where you can learn all the important things that you need to rely on. It kind of sheds you of all the things that you valued at one point that have done very, very little but cause you to be anxious and depressed. And now you're in this incubator, in this kind of, it's, it's like a pressure cooker, I suppose, but it's really an incubator where it's you and God Maybe your fears that you're confronting, your loneliness. But you're learning all the important things that you need to rely on to grow in intimacy and trust in the Lord and really grow in character. Repentance looks like this. I realize that I've been hooked into these things. A, B, C, D. That's not repentance by itself. That's what most people think repentance is. Especially when they share it in community groups. It's like you're going to confession and that's like it. That's not it. That's not even the beginning of it. Repentance is I realize these things. And I see the ways that it's hurting me. And circumstances have come about to make me question whether or not I should be leaning on these things. Because I've turned away from Christ. And that really hurts me. I realize that my relationship with Christ is broken here. That's why I'm relying on these things. And so I'm going to let these things go. At the least, they're going to be less important. They're going to be unimportant. And here's what I mean when I say that they're unimportant. I'm going to turn my back on these things. I'm going to stop relying on these things. I'm going to put people around me to make sure that I don't go back to these things. I'm going to turn from it in this way, this way, this way, and this way. And now I'm going to turn to Christ and I'm going to increase my time with him, my energy in learning what it means because he has given me the time and the space to really grow with him. I'm going to invest that time because it's going to reap dividends for me in my intimacy and trust in the only one who truly empowers and builds. Does that sound right? Y'all hearing me? Don't waste this time. God, be, God can be using this time to mature you, to build skills and wisdom, the wisdom that you need to navigate life well and bear fruit. When Samuel looks at it the first time, he says, surely it's him. You know what he says? He says, this is the anointed. The Hebrew word for that is messiah, which means the messiah. This is the messiah, the one that God has sent. In the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is Christos, which is where you get the word Christ. In other words, what Samuel saying is, this is the one. This is the Christ. But it wasn't Eliab. In fact, it wasn't even David. Because David was just a precursor. He was just a pointer to the ultimate king. In Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. David was born in Bethlehem. Everybody's looking for a king. Uh, but David wasn't even allowed in. He was left with the sheep and the animals. He was a shepherd. But there was another child born in Bethlehem. Centuries later, everyone's looking for a king. He wasn't allowed in. He was left with the sheep and the animals in a manger. And he was the good shepherd. And as soon as he was anointed by the Spirit, when he was baptized, he was immediately sent into the wilderness. There, he was alone it was an incubator for 40 days. He was always overlooked. All the way up to a cross. And on that cross, he wasn't just forgotten. I mean, David david was forgotten. He was left out by his father. But Jesus Christ, he, was, he wasn't just forgotten by the father. He was forsaken by the father. He was rejected by the father. He was cast out of the city of Jerusalem. The city of God. But then he was cast out by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying there on the cross is now I'm truly, cosmically, spiritually ultimately overlooked and forsaken by my father, God. In fact, he doesn't even call him God. He says, my God, my father. He, He doesn't say my father, my father. He says, my God, my God, the most beautiful person in the world, the most worthy king in the world, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth unrecognized, lost all attractiveness, emptied himself of any attractiveness. Isaiah 53 says he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he became sin to make us holy. He became ugly to make us beautiful. Jesus Christ was disowned by the Father so that we could be made sons. Galatians chapter 4 says we have the full rights of sons as a result. Jesus Christ became a slave, a slave to death. Why? So that we could become kings. 1 Peter chapter 2 says you are a royal priesthood. You are kings. You feel ugly today? You feel weak today? Some of y'all listening, you're watching in your boxers. You feel ugly? You feel weak? (laughs) Look to the ultimate narrative of rejection. Perfected by Jesus. The high king paid the eternal debt of justice and he was rejected. The gospel teaches us that... God works through the forgotten. He works through the rejected, the overlooked to bring about the ultimate salvation. That means that he can work through you. You don't have to be afraid of the real you because Jesus took on the real you and he's given you the real him. That's power. And when you say that my life is not built, it's not based on my own merit, but on Jesus' merit, not on my record, but on Jesus' record, not on my status, but Jesus' status, not on my wisdom, but Jesus' wisdom, the Holy Spirit rushes in and there's the beauty and there's the power, real power, real kingliness. The real kingliness that you need. External beauty says you have to work for that. You have to pay your dues for that. You have to sacrifice for that. The gospel says that Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person in the world. In the heavens, and yet he already worked for that. He already accomplished that for you. He died for you. There's the validation. There's the approval. There's the honor that you need. Pursue Christ. Pursue his love. Know his love for you. Know that you have been pursued by him. He must have thought you were beautiful. He came all the way down and emptied himself of all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his honor and all of his power for you. To die for you. The true king who suffered the wrath of God because he wanted you. That's the only truth. Knowing that, trusting that, that can truly change you because it will fill your heart. With the joy of being found in him, being known by him, being loved by him. This is the end of anxiety, the end of depression, the end of comparisons, the end of envy, the end of jealousy, the end. It's going to give you the power to melt away your obsession with externals and completely change your eyes. I mean, if you think about it, the gospel is the ultimate leveler. It's the ultimate equalizer because it doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care how much money you have. It doesn't matter where you've studied. Everybody is on equal plane in the sense that we're all made ugly in sin. And then it comes down to then what you've received by God himself. Are you, I mean, if you're pretty, if you're handsome, if you're studied, if you're athletic, if you've got a good physique, It's hard to let that go. It's impossible without Christ. It's hard to let that stuff go. So you're basically choosing to live a life. Right now you're going to play the odds and say, well, I've got an edge on other people. That's not a big edge. You're going to get old. You ain't going to be pretty forever. Your kids don't care how educated you are. They don't care. How do you, how do you pursue it? I'm just going to, I'm way over today. I don't care. This is important. Don't be obsessed with externals because, I'm going to say it like this, man. We have a very decadent church. We have people in our church who talk gospel, sing gospel, pray gospel, but they are obsessed with material, wealth. Compare and they look around and compare one another, where they stand versus where other people stand. Don't be obsessed with externals. Because people who are obsessed with externals, they overlook David. They even overlook Jesus pursue kingly character if you spend as much money and time and energy invest your time and energy in character as much as you did your outer qualities if you spend if you invest as much in integrity and purity as you did on your education or your wealth building if you valued or treasured or delighted in your relationship with a father as you do your friendships or your significant other you're all going to reach a greater potential a greater freedom and a greater joy than any of these things put together can offer you. You know why we don't do it? It's because you're afraid. You don't trust. You're afraid that if I do this, then they're not going to like me. They're going to walk away from me. If I do this, then I might fail. And then what, I'm, what am I left with? If I do what if I fall? What if I mess up? If I, uh, you're afraid, if, if I walk away from this person, I'm giving up. A secure life. That's what's really driving you. I mean, is your identity and your eternity worth all that? Worth that? These are what you really value. These are your idols. These are what drive your decisions. This is going to drive what you're attracted to, who you surround yourself with. It's blinding. I know, it's blinding. So, what are some things we can do? One, stop trying to pursue Eliab's repentance. Looks like this: I realize I've been pursuing Eliab's all my life, and I realize I've been trying to present myself and as an Eliab, my, Eliab all my life. And I'm going to flip this. I'm going to flip the script here. I'm going to stop pursuing it. I'm not. I'm going to stop pursuing it. I'm going to get out of that rat race. Samuel looks at a live. He focuses on the exterior. What do people, what are, what's attracting people to you? And what are you attracted to? Oftentimes, we pursue the confidence of a person rather than their humility. We pursue their humor. We don't pursue their wisdom. What attracts us we're attracted to their prowess, whether it's in their, their skills, their abilities. We don't really look into what God is actually doing in that person that's revealed in their pride or through their pride or their brokenness. By the way, it's not binary. Every, every skillful person uh, can admit that they have pride. Admitting that doesn't make you a repentant person. I think I said that like five times today, right? looking at a person and envisioning what is God doing in that person through their weakness. It assumes that they understand their weaknesses and that they are conscious and self-aware to recognize that God is doing an amazing thing more through their weakness than through their strengths. And are they forsaking those strengths? Those things are incredible blessings that God can use. They're not given to us so that we can rely on them apart from God. Uh, Two, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, when the Holy Spirit rushes into your life, that means that when you become a Christian, essentially, uh, there's going to be suffering in your life. I mean, there's suffering in general but there are specific sufferings that come with being a Christian. But there's always redemption through suffering. I'm not saying that there's suffering because of your pride. Prideful people are going to suffer. They're going to suffer prideful consequences. Right? But a Christian recognizes that God is doing something through it. Number one, he's humbling you. And that Being humbled, the key to redemption sits there. What does that humility look like? How does it get practiced? How does it get fostered? How do you fan the flames of that? It usually happens in the darkness. That means that if you're in the darkness, if you're in a cave, God is setting you up to build a king. You got to look at it like that. Suffering. Brokenness is the prerequisite for salvation. The prerequisite for redemption. The prerequisite for healing. The prerequisite for wisdom. But it's also the prerequisite then for compassion and love and joy and character. and That's kingly character. You think about all the pathologies in our lives. You think about all of our toxic friendships. Our toxic judgments. It's because more often time we're focusing on the character of another person when we should be investing that time focusing on our character and if you're humbled by your lack of character that's the first step to turning to christ you're not all the way there you got to turn to christ and look at his character and what it means to be in union with christ that means you are endowed with that character you have the capacity and the power of christ I encourage you during this time to take those steps it's what has enabled metro to thrive it will continue to enable metro to thrive but really more so that's how it affects a community of people and through that through a small entity we've become a much bigger entity and through that much bigger entity we've done a lot to impact people around us but you're going to hear that soon but I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about your life, your future family. I'm talking about your legacy, your children. I'm talking about what you do with your wealth. How you view it's going to be based on how you view your wealth, how you view who owns that wealth, how you view how you accumulated that wealth. And that's just wealth. How do you view your looks? How do you view your physique? I remember years ago an argument between a couple people in our ministry over just working out and thinking, you know, to decide, you know, how obsessed we are justifying the things in our lives in a way that it's godly when it's really selfish. Let's get honest and real for the lord come to him and and really grow intimate during this time we don't have much time left we're going to start meeting together in person again so let's take advantage of that time right now now's the time let's pray